I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a passionate Chinese chef sharing his story of how hosting pop-ups in his dorm at Yale evolved into a restaurant empire. But before we get to our guests, we have a quick update. Food Network Obsessed is going to take a quick break from releasing new episodes for the rest of June, but do not worry. We will be back in July with more brand new episodes and guests. So we hope you enjoy your start to summer and make sure you're following Food Network Obsessed wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss the next new episode. All right, let's get to it. He is the chef at both Junza Kitchen and Nice Day Chinese Takeout. It's Lucas Sin. Lucas, welcome to the podcast. You opened your first restaurant when you were just 16. So I think this is just a very interesting, a simple fact that really speaks volumes about your passion for food and dining. So let's unpack that a little bit. How does a 16-year-old come to open his own restaurant? Uh, I mean, to this day, I don't know for sure. <laughs> but So I'm from Hong Kong, and we were in Hong Kong, and uh, I was 16. I had one more summer left before I was going to go to college in the U.S., and I remember sitting in the car with my father who asked me what I was going to do with my last summer. And I didn't quite have an answer. And he said, you like restaurants and you like food, don't you? And I said, I suppose so. And then he said, why don't you open a restaurant? And I said, okay. And we <laughs> did that. I mean, I taught my friends how to hold three plates at once. We talked about wine. We built this menu. It was called Bozai, which is Cantonese for clay pot. Um, we have this famous dish called clay pot rice. You know how... Some rappers have rapper names and chefs have chef names. Um, uh-huh. I, I fancied myself as like the clay pot kid because that was my favorite dish. So it was, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was in an abandoned newspaper factory, um, 13 courses, wow. mostly word of mouth. And um, people would meet at a secret location and then we would send them a little bus. They'd get on the bus, they'd get off at this newspaper factory. They'd walk in into this, basically this private wine cellar that someone had lent us. And it had a semi-professional kitchen attached to it. And we just started cooking. Um, we had no idea what we were doing, but we bootstrapped it and f- tried to figure it out along the way. I think, yeah, I mean, that's honestly how it got started was yeah. a bunch of kids taking themselves way too seriously and playing <laughs> restaurant. I mean, what, I mean, you said it was several courses. I mean, what, what yeah. kind of food are you cooking? So we were, I, I was excited by this idea of Hong Kong food, Hong Kong food being a particularly 
diverse and multicultural, but also, you know, uh, a, a type of authentic fusion, right, um, between cultures. So um, in that sense, there was there was a lot of Japanese influence, there was a lot of Korean influence, but obviously different regions of China um, and a lot of like Western style plating. I mean, our, our, our signature dish was, as far as a 16-year-old can have a signature dish, it was, <laughs> it was clay pot rice, you know, pork belly, mm-hmm. um, braised for a very long time, super succulent and sweet. And then uh, steamed with taro and different types of preserved meats um, on a traditional uh, clay pot. So it had this like sort of like earthy, toasty aroma and like crispy rice on top of it. Um, yeah, it, I think it was the first foray, but it really certainly got me excited about the idea of being in restaurants, um, but also importantly, trying to tell stories through food. Um, it was just interesting to start thinking about the the diversity and the and, and the history of Hong Kong food culture. Um, so we're exploring a lot of ideas through the food there. And I think that's a lot of the crux of what I'm I'm still most excited about today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, y- you speak so fondly of your hometown, Hong Kong. How would you describe it to someone who's never been? Hong Kong, Hong Kong's changed quite a bit. But I mean, we when I grew up, um, the government tagline was Asia's world city. Um, and it was very much sort of an entryway into the rest of uh, China, if not Asia. Um, and from a food perspective, I mean, I grew up with some of the most delicious food in the world, but it was also really cool to see both very traditional, authentic, sort of like Cantonese cooking, um, next to these places called Cha Chan Tangs that are like Hong Kong style diners, which is the Hong Kong reappropriation, so to speak, of basically European cafe culture. So we have uh, coffee and tea, scrambled eggs with toast, um, and that sort of stuff. So like Western, well, Chinese, what Hong Kong people would call Western style food, which really is like Hong Kong Western style food. So there's a huge amount of diversity and it's really wonderful and colorful city. How did that food culture really shape your perspective that, that you have now as a chef? When we think about how food comes to be the way that it is and how food culture evolves, it's important to think about the food ways and the, the different cultures that contribute to something, right? And so Hong Kong was a really good uh, canvas for exploring um, how food cultures come together, how they change from uh, from immigration, from economic principles, from ingredients that are available. Um, and you see these really interesting sort of like melange of, of ideas come and, and become tradition, right? I mean, Hong Kong diners, cha chan are really the best example. Um, my favorite dish in cha chan are is baked pork chop rice. So it's a thick cut pork chop that is um, marinated, sort of Chinese style, they squeeze it a lot. And then it's deep fried and then it's put on top of a bed of golden fried rice, which is rice fried with eggs and nothing else. And then it's got this like almost bolognese or um, like tomato sauce Mm. that is bolstered primarily with ketchup. So it's like this sweet tomato sauce and then cheese over the top. So it's like this baked, one of this baked pasta dish, right? Um, But it's on top of rice. It's got this like your Shaoxing wine, soy sauce, marinated pork chop. It's deep fried, but it's also like crispy and soggy at the same time. And, And that's... I mean, it, it's right in between that like East meets West, right? Yeah. Um, like stuff like that is what's most exciting to me, you know. Yeah, even in the U.S. and now that I live um, in New York City, it's almost like I. It's the opposite side of things. It's like American Chinese food, which is in a lot of ways like an American version of Chinese food instead of a Chinese version of like Western food. Yeah. Um, like <laughs> that duality is like I mean, really exciting to think about. Yeah, I mean, when you are feeling nostalgic for home, what what are you cooking up? Are you making what you just described? Is it yeah. is it the breakfast? Is it something else? Yeah. Yeah, breakfast is certainly part of it. I mean, you know, uh, like it, we grew up with these foods that we love. And we get scared to cook them because we don't want to muck it up. Um, <laughs> and certainly you don't want to do your your parents or whoever made the food. Um, um, uh, you want to do them proud. So I, I resisted cooking a lot of the foods, the dishes that I grew up with for a long time, you know, um, soups, 
uh, stir-fried veggies, um, even tomato and egg and things. I, I, I tried not to cook that stuff at home because I have this very fond and robust memory of them. But during the pandemic, I was at home for a short amount of time. And I find myself really missing home and wanted to cook through some of these things. And that, that's when I started throwing these tiny recipes up on Instagram because I would remember my parents saying things about specific dishes like, you know, we have a steamed meatloaf. And my dad would say, when you're mixing this meatloaf, you can only mix clockwise. And Why? as a professional chef, I, I didn't know. And as a <laughs> professional chef, I was like, there is no way that that is true. I, I don't understand the principles behind it, blah, blah, blah. And so you start interrogating those ideas and you try it out and you test it out. And, the, and then what you end up doing is you end up translating this intergenerational knowledge about home cooking into like modern culinary principles. In this case, mixing the meatloaf in one direction it, it ensures that you're extending the protein strands as long as possible so that uh. when it's steamed and, and you know, the, 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 the water comes out of the meat and it puffs up a little bit, that it's locking in all that like bounciness. And so you get this texture in China we call Q, which is like a sort of like toothsome, like a um, little bit of resistance to your teeth, like bounciness, kind of like a, kind of like a fishbowl, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it also like means that the, there's a, some degree of emulsification. You add ice water into it so that um, the temperature is nice and um, the fat and the, and, and the, the, the non-fat sort of like the polar and the non-polar molecules come together. And uh, yeah, I mean, those things, that's not how dad explained it. Um, that's <laughs> not how grandma explained it. It's been a little bit of a, a journey and certainly a lot of fun to um, ask myself those questions about traditional Cantonese home cooking techniques. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your dad, your grandma. Mm -hmm. who, who is the person in your life that that really introduced you to cooking? I know your grandma told you yeah. not to become a chef. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's the first thing I remember her ever saying to me. Because So my grandma was a cook. She was a cook at the back of a mahjong parlor, you know, where people play mahjong, they're gambling. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't a cook by any sort of like magnificent or luxurious means. She, she certainly didn't want to be a chef. She ended up having to be a cook. And knowing the hardship that she went through she was very keen on most of her life, sort of getting her, her kids, her my dad and myself to um, not have to cook for uh, living anymore. So that's why she said, don't become a cook. But uh, I think the my dad was very, very instrumental in introducing like a curiosity about food. He would always say, you know, like, if you're eating three times a day, um, that's three times to like that's three opportunities to think about the food, think about who made it, where it came from, whether you like something, um, why you like it, and try to dig a little deeper and use it as a bit of an exercise. I think that's that's how it really the love of food really got started. But um, for cooking and for restaurants, I think honestly, it's like it's spending time in these restaurants um, and feeling the camaraderie of the kitchens and falling in love with kitchen culture. Yeah, while I was in school. I know also, you know, during your younger years in middle school, you, you attended summer camp in the U.S. and you were introduced to, you know, you kind of mentioned it a, a little bit ago, American yeah. Chinese food. What do you remember about that experience and how it, yeah. it kind of like maybe, you know, switched a perspective that you already yeah. had? Yeah, I, I don't know. I was just like bizarrely shipped over to the U.S. for a random <laughs> middle school sort of summer school program. <laughs> I honestly don't know why we were there, um, but I found myself where were the, like somewhere in the new, somewhere in New England maybe at some high school that wasn't a high school during the summer. I don't know. And we were staying there. It was the, the first boarding experience, so to speak. Okay. Right? And uh, I just remember. I'm going to make this up. Somebody needs to fact check me. But I believe it was like Tuesdays or something. It was like very specific. It was like one day of a week. This Chinese dude would pull up in a van outside the dorms at like 10 p.m. or so, right before curfew. And he would have all these styrofoam boxes at the back of his van of all the different Chinese American dishes, right? 
every permutation. Uh, general Tso's with fried rice, orange chicken with fried rice, chicken and broccoli with brown rice and all these things. And we had a little bit of cash to spend. So it was, it must have been something like six or seven dollars for a box. And the kids would pour out of the dorms and like get this like late night Chinese food. And I remember being struck because this is my first American Chinese experience that I could not tell the difference between General Tso's chicken, orange chicken, sesame chicken, and all the rest. <laughs> I was like, this is all ridiculously, absurdly, obscenely delicious, but I honestly could not tell you the difference between them. And, um, and as a Chinese kid coming to the US, you know, you're like, that's the most sort of like exotic experience, you know. Um, and I mean, I, I have that memory of it and didn't really think about American Chinese food too much until um, I opened uh, Junza Kitchen in New Haven and New York, which is really sort of a home-style vegetable, lack of a better term, kind of like Chinese fast casual food, right? Like it's it's for like students, it's for people who are working, it's uh, it's kind of like sweet greenish and chipotle-ish in, in, mm-hmm. in a lot of senses, right? But when we were making that food, you're not thinking about General Tso's chicken. It was until um, people started asking, hey, so what's happening with the Chinese-American restaurants that are currently in the US? I think at some point we polled the data from Yelp to figure out how many Chinese restaurants there were. And like, we're looking at like 46,000 before the pandemic. And that's a lot of Chinese restaurants. Mm-hmm. And these are mom and pop places that are serving General Tso's chicken, sesame chicken, orange chicken, spring rolls, lo mein, fried rice. And we're asking ourselves like, where, what's happening to them? And we see that there are these like critical difficulties with, with, the, with the supply chain, with the way the restaurants are run. Um, they're not being modernized. And also people aren't going back to run these restaurants because the kids are lawyers and engineers and doctors and stuff. So I think we started thinking about that and I got really excited about learning a little bit more about American Chinese food, both from the culinary perspective and from the entrepreneurship sort of perspective. And so our new restaurant concept, uh, Nice Day, which just opened in Long Island, is our attempt to address some of those questions about the state of American Chinese food. Yeah. And, and these concepts were kind of, I mean, born, you know, while you were at school yeah. at Yale. Um, your Your focus was on cognitive science and English. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're you're hosting pop-ups out of your dorm's basement on the mm-hmm. weekend. So first of all, how how is the RA okay with yeah. this? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> uh, no R- I mean, uh, the I, I don't know. Um, I owe so much to my school and they were so supportive. I remember being in English class and I got a call from my dean who was like, hey man, so uh, the, the health department's reading about you cooking for 200 people every weekend. <laughs> in your dorm and uh they're not super happy about that and it's like oh and, and i just remember this like saga of like um uh i don't know my college helping me fend off the health department really? you know basically because it's a student organization and all these things but you know we were in the basement of my dorm uh, the first the first pop-up was actually in my dorm room it was uh instant noodles and you would bring your as a you know you as a customer you'd bring your favorite instant noodle okay. i would have some like 48 hour broth going and like sous vide pork belly and all these like toppings and for 5 bucks like i would cook your instant noodles and then put it in our broth with whatever toppings you wanted and it was a little sort of cheeky in that sense but every semester we came up with a new concept um just to with a new team and we just did what we did in high school which is like play restaurant and pretend to know what you're doing <laughs> um, but it was very fun to like roll up your sleeves and like, you know, teach people to wash your dishes and like come up with restaurant concepts and just do pop-ups that way. Um, the, the restaurant we ended up opening, Jun's, and even I say, aren't quite um, a result of those pop-ups. But that's um, how I think people found out about me cooking around campus was hosting these pop-ups um, in the basement. It's, I cooked Friday, Saturday, Sunday, different concepts um, every day. And it's almost like Monday to Thursday, I was a college student and then friday saturday sunday we just played restaurant <laughs> what yeah. were some of like the favorite concepts that, that you came up with during yeah. that time i mean we i remember we 
one of the more ambitious ones was called Fortnite. We called it because we only opened once every two weeks on okay. Fridays because we needed the week to develop it. And there was a different menu every week and uh, five courses. Silly. The sillier the idea, the better. The the better. So you know, one of them was five courses, like the five stages of a relationship. You know, we had like, had, had like we had like a first kiss thing. We had like a I remember we had like a makeup uh, a breakup cake. It was like a, it was heart shaped and like shattered it and like all these like silly things. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, again, taking yourself way too seriously, but like having fun doing it. I mean, that doing it is that's that's a whole that's a whole pop up mentality. Yeah. yeah. What was the feedback from the rest of the students? I mean, obviously, it was a very popular. Uh, you know, I think we had fun. Um, I think we had fun, and um, I mean, uh, Yale in particular, we're, we're very lucky there because um, there is a culture of food, and there is an interest in food in the food industry. Um, Alice Waters, um, obviously, of Japanese. Her daughter went to Berkeley and mm-hmm. Alice was very, very um, important in establishing the Yale farm. Um, so there's a lot of like talk and projects around sustainability and food um, at school. Um, but there's also now that um, a lot of people who I cooked with in college now are in the food industry, whether they're in product development or they're in marketing or they're in sustainability. It's really wonderful to see that like food as a viable sort of uh, industry for for Yale kids. Mm-hmm. And then I know you're you were also spending you know you're you're doing pop ups during school. Then mm-hmm. in the summers you're you're cooking your way through Japan. You know even worked at a Michelin star kitchen in Kyoto for a period of time. How did that you know part of your life come about? Like what motivated you for all these travels and experience in, in Japanese culture and cuisine? I learned Japanese in the first year of college, and then um, went to Japan to study uh, study abroad for the summer. And in lieu of really going to Japanese class, I just ended up spending what seemed to be most of my time hanging out with grandmothers and mm-hmm. just cooking Jap- like Japanese home food. Um, and really, really like fell in love with Japanese food and was convinced that I wanted to become a Japanese chef. I had always had this dream of backpacking and cooking and going into and knocking on people's doors and cooking in whatever kitchen home kitchen or restaurant kitchen that would let me in. So that's what I did my second bout in Japan. I packed my knives and then had my backpack and then just started in Tokyo and made my way all the way down to Nagasaki, stopping in every city, um, staying at hostels and just literally knocking on restaurant doors and um, asking if I could like stay and hang out and, and stage basically. I, you know, I had this whole little spiel. I'm a student I'm from Hong Kong. I uh, study in the US and I just want love your food and I just want to be here for a while. And most of the time they were like, no, get out. <laughs> And the other half of the time, they'd be like, yeah, come out. I have a peach farm. As long as you help me harvest peaches, I'll teach you how to make Nepalese food. And I was like, yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, that was sort of like you know, meandering. I had very long hair back then, uh, bandanas and band-aids and just um, like trying to get absorb as much as possible. And during those travels, I had met a chef at Kikunoi in, in Kyoto and spent a little bit of time there, um, which is a very hardcore sort of kitchen to work in. Through Mission Star, um, World 50 Best type of place. I had a really, really, really good time, learned so much. But on the last day, the chef reminded me that I was Chinese in a, in a, in a benevolent way. He was like, uh, he's telling me his own story about going to France to learn French food and then going to France and realizing that he was Japanese and coming back to run his dad's restaurant. And I had this sort of like, epiphany that oh you're totally right i am chinese and i had to have like neglected to think about my heritage um in that way and maybe i should think about and start cooking chinese food so that's how i ended up going back to school and meeting some of my business partners who um, convinced me to start thinking about what the future of chinese food looks like in the u.s um and that's when jinza kitchen first opened what was the point where you knew that like 
this is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life and not pursue, you know, the, the degree I, that you had, it, that you were going for I, at I, Yale. <laughs> I wish I'm, I was coming off with a little bit more intentionality, but that that spirit of my dad saying, why not open yeah. the restaurant still to this day, I think is like the carrying is like the primary driver for my decisions or the lack thereof. I don't know. I, I don't think that I ever thought to myself, you know, this is what I'm going to do so much as it was at some point, I'm just, you know, slicing cases and cases of scallions and I'm looking to myself like in the (laughs) the restaurant that we've opened I was like I guess there's nothing else to do now like this is it like there's nothing else that I could possibly be doing um, but but cooking obviously I think the pandemic has changed a lot of that Um, it's really interesting to think about what the role of the chef is in society um, because there's so many different types of chefs the question of whether you want to be anchored to a restaurant um, or whether you want to be in the kitchen working the pass or whether you want to start telling people stories in whatever platform and uh, format that you can find. Like there's so many ways to be a chef now. And I think Mm -hmm. I would hope that I find a little bit more intentionality that why not um, in the next couple of weeks or months. Yeah. Oh, I like that though. Like why not? You know, that, that, that helps like take away some of those barriers that that we, Mm -hmm. that we place uh, on ourselves. But I think it's interesting because, you know, obviously you have your experience doing these pop-ups, you know, at a very young age, you had this experience working in very fine dining. What about all of that kind of pushed you to what you're doing now, which is, you know, with Jinza Kitchen and Nice Day, um, kind of more of that, like you said, like that fast, casual kind of atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, I'm, I'm really, if you think about like building Chinese food in the US, and I, I really think the metaphor of like building it is important because a lot of times when we think about food, we, especially food history, we have this implication that it is what it is because it ended up that way. But I think there's a lot of like um, people putting in effort and entrepreneurship and uh, into building something like crafting something. And Chinese cuisine in America is something that's crafted at the hands of a lot of like these mom and pop shops, right? Like we invented General So's chicken and then we built a system for other people, uh, our cousins who are coming from Fujian to like have this very similar recipe and expand. I mean, there are these Chinese restaurants everywhere. They're remarkably similar, but there is no headquarters in Illinois that says, here is the General Tso's chicken recipe, right? <laughs> like in Arizona, the sesame chicken is going to taste a lot like the, the one in Vermont. And that's uh, like this, the whole system was like built. So I think when we're thinking of building Chinese food in America, Sometimes a helpful metaphor is like we, we want to build a house and then there's a roof and there are columns in the middle, there are rooms, and then there's like this base level. And the roof is like really important genre pushing, it's often a little bit more pricey restaurants, right, mm-hmm. in that Chinese category. Um, a lot of these are brands coming from China now, but also like most importantly, I think about Cecilia Chang's restaurant that opened in 1962 um, in San Francisco called The Mandarin, where she was proving to people that there's elegance in Chinese food and there's service and all these things. And if you're thinking about the house, I think fast casual and takeout is very much sort of a lot of the foundation because people are eating this multiple times a week. It's the food that they're ordering for delivery is the food that they're eating at their desks. And it doesn't have to be the most glamorous, but it should be a part of the regular conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we first opened Junza, fast casual was the way people were primarily eating, right? Especially in the coastal cities. Um People were eating. They're 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 building their own. They're customizing. Um, and there's a slight, there's some interesting flavors that like complement the type of diet that they want and um, uh, type of way they want to eat. And so it just made a lot of sense to do fast casual. Um, uh, it wasn't certainly it wasn't a 
didn't feel like a step down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually very glad that um, we opened Junza, I think something like six years ago now, and very happy that I had that experience. And that was my first sort of like chef experience because I learned so much about the food industry. I learned so much about entrepreneurship and scalability and these things that a lot of cooks that go into the regular system of becoming a line cook and then a sous chef and whatever, and then eventually opening the restaurant, that takes a lot more time and they don't get to like really see those systems so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that goes to the, the points back to the diversity of the types of chefs there are today. So yeah, it was sort of, I understand that's a little bit unconventional, but I had a lot of fun uh, doing it and I learned a lot. Yeah. What What is the significance of the name Junza? Uh, so Junza is a pre, it, it, it's a Chinese term that came even before Confucius. It means something along the lines of like like a role model, like a, the, the person you want to aspire towards, like a community leader, right? Like Junza is like an, is a hypothetical ideal of a person that you want to um, uh, aspire towards. Like you want to be like that one day. And it came about because when my business partners were thinking about the name and such, and talking to our advisors and whatnot, they kept talking about, oh, you know, like uh, it's important to us that we become, we would be a Junza, like that, that we want to like aspire towards being like this. And then there's like... Uh, this man Rick Hunt, who's a genius, said, "You just just name the, just name the restaurant Junza." And I said, "Oh, cool. Um, yeah, great idea. Um, it's <laughs> horrible to pronounce, but okay." <laughs> and so we so we went for it. Um, a lot of people say Junzi these days, which is totally fine. But um, yeah, that's how it came about. What I mean, what, what do you feel like the the story of the food is that you you tell at this restaurant? Um, at Junza, I think we're concerned with. A lot of the times, a lot of people think of Chinese food as monolithic, um, which is to say they think of the stir fries, the bright, spicy, savory, salty flavors eaten with rice. And that's very Cantonese because that's how a lot of the American Chinese food that we know, um, a lot of that came from southern China, different parts of southern China. The food that we started off making at Jinzi was a slightly more northern. Um, we didn't serve rice for a very long time because um, we were interested in this idea of um, flour and water that becomes noodles, right? Different shapes of noodles. Uh, we served these um, things called chun bing, or like bings, um, the wraps in the beginning. Um, we've changed significantly since then, but a lot of it is just like a little bit like a lot of pickles, um, braised meats, lightly stir-fried vegetables, sort of like homey, Chinese homey food. Um, I think we do these tomato egg noodles quite well there. Um, tomato egg, any, any Chinese kid listening to this will like know this dish because it's the standard sort of like home style dish, you know, tomatoes stir fried with eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, but we make it northern style into a noodle. Um, okay. uh, it's a little bit uh, saucier. It's not quite a soup. And the same thing for our sesame noodles, um, which it's mounted or reinforced with fermented tofu, which is also kind of like a northern northern Chinese technique. And then how did Nice Day kind of evolve from what you guys had been doing at Jinza? I think during the pandemic, we by, by the time the pandemic happened, we'd been thinking about Chinese takeout for a while and we wanted to work on it because we were quite honestly, even before the pandemic, um, we were looking at we were watching all these Chinese restaurants close. Um, and a lot of the time it's a good thing, right? You know, you have these mom and pop uh, shops, their kids are lawyers now and engineers and they're not coming back to run the shop and um they have these huge leases on their hands um that they can't quite retire from because nobody wants that and you know there's all these like sort of like issues um from just like restaurant business side of things and we're asking ourselves like is this an opportunity um and how do we like what can we do to alleviate it so our main concern with nice day now you know the restaurant we just opened we opened with um mr john who had that? Who had purchased that lease? He's from Fujian, and he had this little shop that he took over, 
um, on a strip mall in Long Island. And they basically only do takeout. They have those like two, three seats in the front. Um, they have a massive 200 item menu. <laughs> and, you know, we worked with him um, to through the real estate process, through the build-up process. And he helped us a little bit with the menu. Um, and we refined, you know, we just modernized in the sense of like, for example, we trimmed down the menu um, to about like less than 50 items to the things that people were actually ordering to make it a little easier on ourselves. We update some of our sourcing practices. Um, we changed a little, obviously, um, the branding has changed. The ordering has changed. We onboarded a lot of like online delivery and that sort of stuff. But little sort of just doing the thing that we did at Jinzu, which is build a slightly more contemporary Chinese um, takeout place and working with the previous generation to make sure that we weren't just uh, gentrifying it so much as we were sort of involving the previous generation in, in this new iteration of Chinese food in America, which to me is what I find the most um, endearing and exciting about Nice Day is that we have we're, we're hoping and we're trying to build that relationship. How do you balance that, though, like with, you know, honoring the tradition, right, and what mm -hmm. came before you, but also making it more, you know, scalable and more appealing to, to, to modern day diners? I think you have to, I mean, it comes first and foremost from a place of understanding. You have to really understand where that um, previous generation of restaurant owners coming from, what their wants are, what their struggles are. Um, and then you have to understand how to translate that into the modern day and you need to be careful about what you add. I think when we first opened Nice Day, um, we got a little bit of coverage and their see media, especially, you know, media in the US tends to want to sensationalize, you know? So um, there was a little bit of a, uh, implication that Lucasin is the cheeseburger egg roll, Mapo mm. mac and cheese fusion overlord. <laughs> and, was, and it's like, yes, we have these like silly, stupid dishes. Like cheeseburger egg roll is cheeseburger and egg roll like mushed together and there's no <laughs> finesse to it. It is not the future of Chinese food, but it is, it sells well and it's a conversation started. What we mostly sell still to this day is golden fried rice, uh, which is just fried rice done properly with eggs, like, like underneath the uh, big pork chop rice, uh, chicken lo mein, uh, general sauce chicken, like those and like uh, chicken and broccoli, beef and broccoli, like those dishes are still most of our, our menu. And that's the stuff that most people are eating on a regular basis. And to, we need to understand and sell that stuff um, and understand it from how it's been made and how it's been consumed. Mm -hmm. um, if you have that understanding, then you can play with adding some little things to start the conversation and maybe hook people in with more outrageous dishes like cheeseburger egg rolls. Um, <laughs> but I certainly am not sitting here thinking that, oh, you know, the, what, you know, the future of Chinese food needs like more Frankenstein fusion <laughs> food. Um, right. It is, it is a part of it. And I, we put it on as a joke and, and um, uh, yeah, people seem to like really uh, latch onto it. Yeah, I mean, you've kind of you know talked about that on social media. This this idea of like elevating Chinese cuisine. Why why do you think that that's the sentiment, and how do you correct that narrative through your own platform and and whatnot? Yeah, um, you only need to elevate something if you believe that it's down low, right? Right. Um, if we have this implication that Chinese food is low and that it's not um, uh, interesting uh, and it's you know, perhaps like not tasty and it's cheap and all these things, then with that stereotype and that idea in mind, then we believe that Chinese food needs to be elevated. I don't think elevate is the right word or the right mindset. I think it's it, it's about like modernization. It's about context, right? It's like changing the context in which it's eaten. Part of it is education but to tell people, hey, Chinese food is interesting. But part of it is some degree of like modernization. Um, it's not to make it better so much mm -hmm. as it is to like bring it up to speed, right? Okay. And, and it's, you know, it's ingredients and it's environment and the way it's delivered to you. It's like packaging, it's branding. It's like all those little things. And the flavors also, like, they can, they can be modernized, but it certainly doesn't need to, we don't need to come at it with a, with a um, uh, perspective that I can make it better as if it weren't 
as if people weren't working hard and putting their time and, and effort into this in the first place. Yeah, just changing that 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 mindset and that mm-hmm. that perspective. Yeah. Um, speaking of modern, you know, appliances, I did <laughs> I did see on your Instagram that you had posted a recipe for a whole steamed fish. Yes. Um, in the microwave using a shower I love microwaves. A shower yeah. cap. Wait, you have to you have to tell me more about this. <laughs> okay, so. Cecilia, who I had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, um, yep. uh, she honestly, um, uh, she, she was a mentor of mine. Uh, she passed away recently, uh, very sadly, but she, I think she was probably one of the most, if not the most um, important um, Chinese chef in America um, uh, so far. She, um, I met her through my, one of my college professors and for whatever stroke of luck ended up being able to stay with her in her home when we were visiting San Francisco. And I was there once and uh, she asked if we were hungry and we said, yes. And uh, she went into the kitchen and she said, watch this. Uh, she pulled out this fish, she cleans it. She um, uh, stuffs it with ginger and scallion, a little splash of wine. Um, she rests it on two chopsticks on top of a larger plate that fits the fish. Um, and but keep in mind that this time she's like 98, 99 years old. Wow. Um, she is retired, but she's constantly speaking, uh, whether it's on panels or in interviews. She's still getting James Beard Awards. You know, she, 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 she is still a force of nature. Um, and uh, she has this fish prepped and she's like, hold on. She hobbles into her bathroom into her into a shower she grabs her shower cap <laughs> and she stretches her shower cap of this thing and it all clicks into place right you know this like this chefy sciencey thing we're like, oh yeah it totally makes sense because what's happening is when this fish is going to go into the microwave the way microwaves work is that um uh every molecule is vibrating at a specific frequency and the friction that's caused causes the heat right and so what you ended up doing is you you end up steaming the fish inside out when you're steaming in a conventional steamer the steam is coming from the water molecules outside into the fish so at the end of the day inevitably the outside will cook more than the inside for a microwave that doesn't happen as easily second of all um, because of the shower cap you don't have to add extra liquid to it so the fish is steaming in its own sort of moisture yeah. yeah so it's just intensified right she puts this in the microwave she looks at me she's like lucas microwave on high for eight minutes and i was like got it and then she's like <laughs> bulletproof and she takes it out she like pours off the excess sort of like uh, gunky fish water and then she puts like the soy sauce and the little like sizzle of the hot oil over the ginger and scallion over the top and obviously you know obviously the best chef in the world like it's like the, this is, it's delicious yeah and i was so inspired by this lady like she, like he's been around for so long. She's ran one of the most important restaurants in America, um, and she is just microwaving me the steamed fish at the age of 90, 99. And I was like, "This is this is this is what it's all about, right? This yeah. is like this is like modern Chinese food, and people don't talk about this stuff." Um, I do love the microwave. Um, I I don't really have very many steaming. Uh, I don't have like a steaming apparatus at home. I steam very very infrequently because most of the stuff that I need to steam, I'll, I'll do in the microwave. It's faster. Oftentimes, it's more consistent. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in fast casual. I'm like fast food. I, yeah. I love sandbagging. You know, I love <laughs> cheating. And I just, yeah, it's like, and uh, microwaves are the best way to do that at home. Why, why do you think that there, I mean, you know, because obviously when they first came out, it was just like, oh my gosh, it's amazing, you yeah. know, contraption. And then it yeah. kind of went the other way where it's like, oh, you use the microwave, like as, as yeah. kind of like a bad thing. Like why, yeah. why do you think that that is? And, I mean, this is mis science, right? People are like, <laughs> oh, you're like nuking your food. I, I, I mean, that's also sort of like an unfortunate, like turn of phrase. <laughs> sure. 
Uh, yeah, and it's like, no, we're not like, we're not radi- cooked by radiation. You know, massive just like misunderstanding of the science and the technology behind microwaves. To this day, I mean, this is like a year 3000 level technology that we somehow we found, sure. you know, like so many years ago that everybody should have at home. Yeah, I, I love microwaves. Um, there are other like really interesting pieces of tech um, that you see in um, a lot of professional kitchens that I'd hope to see eventually one day um, in home kitchens that I think would make a lot of our convenient home cooking better. Like what? Um, uh, like freezing with liquid nitrogen is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw somebody freeze a freaking salad with liquid nitrogen and they reheated it in uh, basically a convection refrigerator. So it's a refrigerator at like 40, 41 degrees, like refrigerator temp with a fan. Okay. Which obviously makes so much sense. And so you're reheating, right? Uh, reheating or like bringing to temp, bringing to cold temperature, this uh, leafy green that has been frozen really, really quickly. And when it comes out, it's not bruised, right? You know, like the, the bag spinach that we have at home in the freezer, like because it freezes too slowly and it's reheated too slowly, all of those cells burst. Mm. And so you lose all the chlorophyll, like it, it just becomes like mushy. But here we are with like rapid freezing technology now, that would be so cool to see at home. And we can do so many interesting things with, with things like that. Also, you know, in all the, the reason why Subway is delicious I suppose that might be a controversial statement, but the reason why like toasted bread and these like toasted hoagie type of restaurants are so good is because of these pieces of equipment called turbo chefs and turbo chefs are kind of like, they're kind of like like microwave massive like convection oven things that are way too big for our homes. But that would be so cool to see one day. Um, We're starting to get like steam ovens, like, um, combi yeah. ovens in in kitchen in, in home kitchens now like that stuff I don't know I'm kind of a geek about all that stuff and um, right now it's just the microwave is the only thing my tiny New York apartment has space for. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, your star is certainly on the rise. Uh, you were named at Eater Young Gun and one of Forbes 30 under 30 in 2020 Food and Wine Best New Chef last year. What what do these accolades mean to you as you continue to to grow and evolve as a chef? Oh goodness, um, uh, that's a Great. I mean, that's a question I'm working through with my therapist. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Every time, I, I always feel like I, I'm just so uh, new to this. Mm-hmm. I uh, don't really, I'm not sure that I deserve any of it at all. Especially, I mean, I'm very humbled by the fact that um, I get to be in conversation with my cohort and other chefs that are on these lists uh, because I am a fast, casual guy. Some people think of me as a YouTube instagram guy which i'm sort of i suppose um i mean i don't like really produce content in that sense but and it's really i mean it's really humbling um but also exciting to see that there are again like this diversity of chefs that can be included in lists like this that it's mm-hmm. not just fine dining guys making french and italian food and the other chefs that i've met are chefs that i would i'm i'm cooking with now right i get to go to the restaurants i, I float around the world and hit them up and say, hey, can we, can I cook in Austin with you? Um, I just came back from uh, Atlanta. I was cooking with a friend of mine called Parnas Savang, who runs an amazing Thai restaurant called Talat Market. And I was working the line with his mom, who works at Curry Station for like a week. It was awesome. Wow. And it's just like really cool to meet all these like young kids and starting to feel the kinship um, in these chefs who are not going through the traditional uh, route. Um, they're they're taking the leap. They're taking the risk to open their own restaurants. They're very um, insistent on telling their own story. Um, and I mean, the, the the best part of this is, um, I mean, I do a lot of pop-ups um, under now this group that we call the Shy Boys Club. Yeah. Um, between me and my buddy Eric, who runs 886 and Win Win in New York. 
um, Shy Boys Club is called Shy Boys Club because we make introverted Asian food. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> um, it's food. <laughs> uh, it's food very that, shy um, food. <laughs> I know, just like shy food that we're too shy to cook in our own um, restaurants, basically, okay. because the idea is like we have people, Eric's a Taiwanese chef, so people expect him to make Taiwanese food strictly. I'm a fast casual Chinese chef, so I can't put crazy things on the menu. It has to be kind of fast casual, right? Mm. Um, and so we just wanted to get together once a month to make food that was silly and stupid. We did uh, things like uh, our favorite one was a very elaborate uh, hot pot night um, mm. with truffle and caviar um, and all these like um, sauces that we would make for people based on their personalities. <laughs> um, I love that. <laughs> uh, we're, we're working on like a Chinese steakhouse concept with like a really great um, new fermented tofu cream spinach dip. And we're going to sear all the steaks and walks and that sort of stuff. So it's just, it's a chance for us to um, have a little bit of fun, but also, you know, it's like those pop-ups. The great thing about pop-ups is um, they're a really quick way for you to learn a lot while mm. running your own restaurant and, and being in other people's kitchens. You see how those kitchens are run for a short amount of time. You meet their cooks um, and you get to build new ideas and test out new ideas. If it's really, really great, then you can take it back and use it for something in the future. And it's a time for experimentation. Mm -hmm. If it's a horrible, you never have to serve it ever again. <laughs> and like people will forgive you for it because they know it's a pop-up. You know, like it's it's a really great sort of platform for you to start trying things out. And I mean, post-pandemic, you see it a lot. Um, like all these chefs, a lot of chefs who've left bigger restaurant groups are starting to use pop-ups as a vehicle to test out ideas, potentially for a restaurant or even not for a restaurant uh, in the future. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's what's wonderful about cooking in a city like New York. Yeah. So is there going to be a Shy Boys restaurant at some point or is this just for fun and pop-ups? <laughs> Eric is just too much fun and the two of us are kind of a bit of a riot, it feels like. So <laughs> yeah. I would, don't know if I can see him, you know, uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, um, <laughs> if we had a restaurant together. But we are working on something in July. I'm hoping for, we're, we're, we've pinned down July 11th for a 7-Eleven style pop-up. We're just going to make fancy convenience store food. I love um, and that. And that's going to be our big comeback uh, post-COVID. Okay, I'll uh, I'll have to be on the lookout then for. Please come through. For, yeah. Yes, I would love to. <laughs> Coming up next, Lucas tells us about his episode of Food Network's digital series, Crack an Egg With. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You also filmed an episode of Crack and Egg for Food Network mm -hmm. and created a Hong Kong-style breakfast. So for anybody that doesn't know, what does a Hong Kong-style breakfast traditionally look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a breakfast set. Um, the main thing is a macaroni and soup with usually ham or something. Okay. And then uh, there is also 
scrambled eggs. Um, Hong Kong style scrambled eggs are the best scrambled eggs in the world, in my opinion. Um, they're very velvety. They cook in about 10 seconds and they're the, the perfect set type of um, curd. Um, they're very, very silky. And then it comes with usually a thicker cut piece of toast um, and then some type of drink. Um, uh, most often either milk tea or yunya, which is half coffee and half milk. Uh, sorry, half, half coffee and half tea mm. um, with evaporated milk. Um, and it's made in this very like elaborate sort of like oxidizing uh, tea uh, technique. And it creates this very sort of velvety and um, like luscious uh, milk tea. Um, and when you add coffee to it, it gives it a tinge of like bitterness um, mm. that is really balanced out by a little bit of sugar and, and evaporated milk. And to go back to your question a little while ago, that, that's the type of food that I would not have made until I had the time to start exploring it um, during the pandemic. What makes Hong Kong style eggs, you know, so much better than any other kind of eggs? So the eggs basically are, um, they're usually Hong Kong style scrambled eggs. Um, they're cooked for a very short amount of time. Um, and inside of the egg usually is some type of fat um, and some type of also liquid, which helps emulsify the yolks and the whites. Um, that fat can either be oil or it could be evaporated milk. Um, sometimes um, some people will add something like corn starch or potato starch to help it set so that after it's scrambled, it doesn't bleed like liquid as it sits on the plate. So it's, 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 it's not dense at all. It's not fluffy because there isn't a huge amount of air in it, but it's almost like layers of this rich sort of delicate um, scrambled egg. Hmm. You kind of mentioned in the episode too, you, you love this, you know, technique forward cooking and you've kind of talked about that throughout this conversation too. What, what does that mean to you exactly? I, I think, oh, well, it depends on who's listening. I mean, for chefs, I would never, like, in front of other chefs, I would never say technique forward because I'm okay. not, you know, mounting foams and, like, using, you know, I'm not, not like, soilless. I'm, like, not verifying things, which sure, seems sure. to be technique forward. Um, <laughs> but I, I certainly am, uh, I, I think it's just important to think about technique or at least how food is made when we're thinking about even simple, indulgent home-cooked meals, something as simple as scrambled eggs. It's worth paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth thinking about uh, uh, because it will it means that you can be a little bit more thoughtful about your food and that your food can be a little bit more delicious. Like just because you're scrambling eggs or just because you're cooking for yourself doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to pay attention to why something is working um, or why, why something is becoming delicious in the way that you want it to become delicious. Mm. Would you ever consider cooking, you know, competitively on a food network show? I, I mean, uh, I honestly, I can't figure out whether I'm a competitive person. I think guys' <laughs> grocery games is the most fun thing in the world. Yeah. Um, that seems like a lot of fun. Um, but I don't think so. Um, I think, well, you know what? Actually, I cooked competitively in college. Um, I did a lot of um, cooking competitions for students who did not go to culinary school. Okay. And it was ridiculous. <laughs> Um, uh, it was insane. It was, you know, like you were judged on your beef tenderloin, not in, only in terms of how it's cooked, but um, how much blood bleeds off of the top after it's been sitting on the plate for 15 minutes, you know. Interesting. It's like a very like amateur baby versions of Bocuse Door type of like approaches. And okay. those cooking competitions are sort of, like French mostly, right? Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was fun because you're cooking with a bunch of other students who didn't go to culinary school. Um, and so I guess the, so I guess that's to say that we were all bad at it, but I was like a little bit less bad. It's like how you would win. But yeah, um, I cooked competitively then and it was a lot of fun. Um, I just don't think that that's my style of cooking. I will say, obviously, as any chef is, when you get home 
you don't really want to cook on the weekends or, like, <laughs> or on your Mondays or day off. Like you don't really want to cook, but you just open your fridge and whatever sort of like 15 bottles of condiments that you have um, becomes like you're chopped. Yeah. So you're already you're, doing that. On a yeah. Day like everyone's this. already doing it. On a day. And pop-ups are basically like that. It's like, That's we true. forgot to design this dish and you just have to pull whatever off the shelf. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, so, so what's next for you? I'm really, uh, well, I, I am cooking in a lot of my friends' restaurants in the next couple of months, which is really exciting. Um, I've been big on Toronto. Um, I was in Toronto for about a little over a month recently and fell in love with the culinary, the culinary landscape there, um, especially in terms of Cantonese and modern Chinese cooking. Um, a lot, I've met so many chefs that I'm going to be cooking with in Toronto. Um, so I'm going back quite a bit this year um, to do events and, and stage a little bit and learn a little bit more. Um, and we'll see. I mean, uh, I, I really hope to find the right time and place for me to dig a little bit deeper into some of the things I'm interested in with regards to uh, Chinese cooking um, and hopefully be able to tell people about it um, in some way, shape or form. Well, we look forward to uh, to seeing that all unfold. I'm sure uh, lots of big things are in store. We mm. are going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round, sure. and then we have one final question for you. All right. So favorite condiment? Oh, goodness. I'm so <laughs> bad at these. I think, uh, you know what's actually wonderful? Vegan mayonnaise. A lot of vegan mayonnaise is really, really good. Um, we did blind taste tests and... Uh, a couple of brands of vegan mayonnaise came up on top, uh, but also vegan mayonnaise, when you can afford it, are, is really great about stabilizing sauces okay. um, opposed to regular mayonnaise because it doesn't split because doesn't there's more break. stuff in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, carb of choice. Rice, for okay. sure. <laughs> My dad called me a rice bucket um, growing up. I had three bowls of rice as a child. Yeah. That's oh me. Oh my gosh. Uh, one veggie for the rest of your life. Which one is it? The correct answer is some type of onion, probably. Um, because I mean, that's irreplaceable, yep. um, but you know, your favorite vegetable, I'm really big on chayote now, um, or we call it Buddhist palm, um, in China. Um, I really, really like that cured raw, um, as well as like cooked a little bit, like very, very barely, mm. almost like a cooked cucumber or, or like a cooked zucchini type. Okay. Favorite late night snack. Oh my goodness. Um, I wish it wasn't, I mean, I'm really, you know how smoked almonds are a little bit too salty? Yeah. I love that. Like the ones, like the generic ones out of the bag. Yep. I love that. I'm big on smoked almonds right now. <laughs> okay. Um, you've got a day off in New York City. What are you doing? Uh, I, what am I doing in New York City? Um, I, I've recently, I don't know, maybe drinking black coffee and walking around the village. Mm. Uh, I, ah, no, you know what I would be doing? I'd be going to places that nobody's ever told me about in Astoria um, or Jackson Heights. Love Jackson um, Heights. <laughs> there, there is, yeah, it's just like the best. So I mean, it's the most yeah. diverse neighborhood. And like, you just, you just know that everyone, like you, you're going to find that one place and then you're not going to tell anybody about it because <laughs> you don't want anyone to know. Yeah. Uh, show or book you're currently into? Um, I just finished Mayuk Sen's uh, book on uh, called Tastemakers about five uh, women, five immigrant women who changed the food scene in America, which is really wonderful. Um, I knew about Bu Yang Chao, who was the first Chinese chef that she he, uh, that he had featured, but um, the other women were all new to me. And um, even there's a little bit about the, like reconsidering Julia Child's legacy, which I thought was really wonderful. I um, mean, he's one of my favorite food writers, um, certainly in uh, writing right now. Kitchen tool you can't live without. Chopsticks. 
<laughs> Disposable ones specifically. Really? Why? Yeah, it's just the, the wooden ones because, well, this is a Cecilia story, but basically we went to a fancy Chinese restaurant and they gave her very, very, very nice lacquer chopsticks and she railed them. She like went into them and was like, you look at my hands. She like she had her hands, she had her claws. She's like, look at my hands. I'm 98 years old. You want me to pick up dumplings with this like slippery chopstick? <laughs> and then they're like, bring me another set. And they brought her another set. And they're like, no, I want the disposable ones because, you know, because they're rough bamboo. Yeah. So then they pick up things like shrimp dumplings better. Um, so I, I always carry uh, uh, disposable chopsticks in my kit um, because they're better for plating. Uh, we don't, I, I don't use tweezers, for example, but they're just really, really great. And, and chopsticks are the type of things that people steal from you or drop or break sure. all the time. So disposable <laughs> is, is better. That's the way to go. Advice you would give your younger self. This is advice that was translated to me. It was given to me already. But when you're hoping to learn something, uh, build a list of the best people to learn from in the world. Um, one, two, three, four, five. And then skip the first one and go directly to the second one. Um, because if you want to learn the best, if you want to work for the best restaurant in the world, if you turn up, there's going to be 40 interns trying to learn the same thing. If you go to the second um, uh, one, they're oftentimes more hungry and most importantly, more willing to teach because they want to invest in you because you're investing in them. And that uh, that's given me a lot more learning opportunities and going directly straight to the top where the people are, are already at the top of the game. Yeah, no, I love that. That's really great. Um, all right. So our final question, we asked everybody this question on Food Network Obsessed. So what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to know what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. You can throw in some snacks oh if you goodness. want. It's just there's no rules. You can travel, time travel, spend however much money you want. Um, anyone can cook these for you. You can cook them. Yeah, we basically just want to know you know, your your ideal meals yeah. throughout the day yeah oh my goodness this is the most <laughs> difficult thing in the world um i i, I so like very many people i don't really eat breakfast um, yep. unless i'm at home because okay. of breakfast culture right um so black coffee is so great and the ritual of making black coffee taking your time to do it i would not mind if black coffee as the breakfast meal was the longest meal <laughs> of the day because you take your time you're just like meditating with it and that sort of thing yeah um get to, you get to read your book you get to be outside all those things lunch what is exciting for me right now? I mean, it'd be really great to uh, skip lunch and have a big dinner. I would love to eat at Cecilia's restaurant. Mm. I would have loved to eat at the Mandarin. She just like poise and elegance and like Chinese food and just the active translation through this massive operation would have been so cool to see. Um, and you keep seeing these like beautiful photos of her and her chi pao and her Chinese dress. And mm. um, she is like floating around the dining room and just like charming the pants of the people um, like James Beard and Julie Child and all these people and Alice Waters and going to the market and stuff. I think that would have been just such a lovely day. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I think I met her a little bit too late in her life and um, didn't have as much time with her as I uh, wish. But yeah, I, for whatever reason, I think I'm uh, thinking about her a lot. So I would love to have eaten at her restaurant or even, you know, um, eaten with her. Um, yeah. When I saw Cecilia, she actually would enjoy bringing me to restaurants that she didn't like to point <laughs> out things that, um, that she didn't like uh, to warn me, like, don't do this when you, you know, when you, you know, when you, you, know, you get up there and you start yeah. opening your own restaurants, um, which was hilarious and uh, very many stories about um, from then. Um, but yeah, um, I think that would have been wonderful for dinner. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and the dessert usually, um, from that is, um, she was the first person, she says, to have brought almond pudding, um, almond jello to the U S. Um, she served it and uh, it's made from Chinese almonds, which are not related to uh, regular, like sort of like American almonds that we know. Um, they're apricot kernels. They're sweeter. They're very floral. They're almost like, um, uh, they're, 
they're very, very bright and you make an almond milk out of them. And, you know, you, nowadays you set it with agar, but you could have set it with gelatin or something. And it's perfect for me because as a chef, as a savory chef, I don't know how to bake. I'm horrible at dessert. And so all of us just make panna cotta <laughs> gels and custard and call it a day and like put something crispy on top and be like, look, dessert. Um, and so yeah, the dessert that I always end up doing is almond pudding. And I would have loved to have uh, her original version. But yeah. yeah, I'm also thinking about that dish a lot. I love that. I love that. That's so perfect. And uh, it's been such a, a joy talking to you and hearing your story. And, and um, I can't wait to see what's what's next. So thank you for your time. No, thank you. We will certainly be on the lookout for Lucas. I have a feeling he's only going up from here. And be sure to check out Jinza Kitchen in Morningside Heights and New Haven and also Nice Day Chinese Takeout on Long Island. Also, you can catch Lucas's episode of Food Network's digital series, Crack an Egg With, on foodnetwork.com. And just one last reminder, Food Network Obsessed is going to be taking a break for the rest of June. We will be back in July with brand new episodes. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 